0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Father God, Lord, we come before you humbly, Lord, humbled by your word. Um, Lord, we desire. To not only be hearers of it as it's read and preached, Lord, also doers of it. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts afresh this morning, Lord. Build us up in grace. Help us to understand the gospel and to respond to it. Lord, help us to, um, Lord, just to respond to your voice, uh, whatever you may be calling us to do this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past spring, as everything was being canceled because of the coronavirus, uh, my family and I, maybe a lot like you, were looking for excuses to get outside, right? Just felt like we were cooped up in the house all the time. And so we began to make these these fires in a fire pit in our backyard, uh, especially since my kids love to make s'mores. I'm not a big s'more guy, but my kids love it. And so we found ourselves occasionally in the evenings around a fire pit in our backyard, and um, all that fire making under different circumstances, damp weather, dry weather, everything in between, it got me thinking about what it takes to kindle a fire. There are three components to, that you need to successfully kindle a fire. Do you know what they are? You need fuel, right? You, usually wood right? Hopefully, that's what you're burning. Uh, second, you need oxygen, all right? You need plenty of oxygen. So you, you can't suffocate the fire, right? And that's especially difficult, I found, in a, a fire pit because there's walls on the thing. Sometimes you've got to actually get down and, and blow on the fire, it, which is a little bit counterintuitive if your only other experience with fire is blowing out your, can- your candles on your birthday cake, <laughs> right? But you've got to feed that, that fire with some oxygen. And thirdly, you need heat, We usually cheat by by, uh, striking a match or reaching for that lighter, but back in the old days, you just friction, right? Rubbing those two sticks together, getting that heat you need. So you need fuel, you need oxygen, and you need heat. All three of those components are necessary to make a fire. You take away one of those and the s'mores aren't getting made today, right? All three of these things are necessary, but on the other hand, none of them is sufficient in and, in and of themselves. You can't make a fire just with wood, otherwise our houses would just spontaneously combust into fire, so thankfully it doesn't do that, right? It, the, the air we breathe doesn't just burst in, into flame for no reason, and neither do we just burst into flame because we're hot, right? So you need all three of those things, but any one of them by themselves is not sufficient to start a fire. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world am I talking so much about building a fire? Uh, well, it's because it really is a good illustration for the conversation that we do need to have this morning, and that is, how how does a person kindle a fire of a relationship with God? Um, how do you kindle the fires of justification before him, if you will? Well, as we saw the in a campfire, there, there are m- multiple necessary components to, to building an actual fire. Um, but, but what does it look like when, when we're talking about kindling a relationship with God? If, if we're talking about being declared righteous by God, do you need to do righteous things in order for God to declare you righteous? Is that a necessary component? Do you need to do a certain percentage of, of good things in order for God to make that declaration of you? Do you need to perform some sort of rite or ritual? Is that a necessary component? You're going to be taking the Lord's Supper here today. Do you need to to do some kind of ritual like the Lord's Supper or perhaps like baptism or circumcision? Do you need to make some sort of sacrifice? Well, there was significant disagreement in the early church between Jews and Gentiles on this very issue. I'm struggling with the wind here. Excuse me just a moment. There was significant disagreement in the early church between Jews and Gentiles on this very issue. The, the Jews would agree that faith was a necessary component of, of our salvation. Right? They didn't disagree with that. They, they knew you had to believe in God. Believe that God is one. Right? But the, the problem is that they didn't see faith, many of them, did not see faith as the sufficient component of being saved. In, in other words, they, they began to add things to faith that they said were necessary in order to be saved. And this really came out when, when Gentiles started coming to faith in Christ. They began insisting that, okay, that's great that you believe in God, but now you've got to get circumcised. You've got to become a Jew. That's what, they were, that's what they began to insist. And Paul, to the contrary, has been insisting that there is only one necessary and sufficient component to, to kindling a relationship with God, and that is faith alone. We are, are not justified by, by multiple necessary components like faith plus works plus circumcision. No, we are justified before God by faith and faith alone alone. And Paul's really been insisting this ever since the middle of chapter three when he transitioned from talking about the bad news that the righteousness of God is being revealed from heaven as wrath against all our ungodliness and unrighteousness right that was the bad news that that we deserve God's wrath but here in uh, beginning in Genesis or I'm sorry Romans chapter three verse twenty one Paul transitions to the good news and begins talking about a new and better manifestation of God's righteousness available to all of those who believe, not by works, but by faith. And specifically here in in chapter 4, as we've been, this is now our second week in chapter 4, Paul has been applying this principle to a number of Old Testament heroes of the faith, particularly Abraham. But we saw last week he, he also applied this to the most famous king of Israel, King David. Now Paul has been having these kinds of, of conversations with his fellow countrymen for so long now that he he can really anticipate, even though he's just writing a letter, he can anticipate what they're going to say before they, <laughs> before they even ask it. And Paul, as he's been asserting here that faith salvation is, is by faith and faith alone, he begins to anticipate here the, their objections. And at the beginning of, of chapter 4, as he's applying this principle to Abraham, it's as if he's basically answering the question, aren't works necessary a necessary component of justification? Don't I have to do righteous things in order for God to find me to be righteous? And as he's applying that principle to, to Abraham, we, we saw last week that Paul demonstrated that justification by faith Alone is not something new, right? It's something that that uh, God has been doing ever since, all the way back to the the forefather of the faith, Father Abraham, the founder of the Jewish nation. Um, Paul took us back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where um, where Moses wrote, "Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness." Now, Paul really made a point of this by saying pointing out that that uh, God didn't say that Abraham did XYZ good work and then God sort of paid him his wages. No, it says that Abraham believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. So that word counted is really an accounting term. I don't know if we have any accountants in our church, but I know we have some financial people in our church. It's an accounting term, right? Um, it, it, it's the Hebrew word chashab, and it's the, the Greek word logizomai, and it, it means literally counted, credited, or reckoned. And scholars will, will tell you that um, it means this word means that something is counted to a person that is not inherent to that individual. In, in fact, the Reformers used to call this an alien righteousness. And by that, they didn't mean extraterrestrials. They meant a a righteousness that was outside of yourself, that you needed to receive, that it needed to be counted, credited to your account. Now, it's also, sometimes you'll hear this word counted, uh, referred to in more of a theological term, and that term would be imputed. Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. This is the language of grace. Right? It's the language. This is gift language here. This is not wage-earning language. We talked about all this last week. And so Paul demonstrates that works righteousness was not a necessary component in the justification of Father Abraham. And then he went on to demonstrate the very same thing from King David's own lips, from Psalm 32. If you look down at the at your Bibles, uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is a direct quote from Psalm 32, where David wrote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So David had a well-known record of sin. Kind of, He had sort of publicly stumbled and fallen. And everyone knows that David coveted his neighbor's wife, then committed adultery with her, and then murdered her husband in order to cover it up. It's a a pretty well-known record of sin. And so David's well-known record of sin actually is a, a wonderful argument proving this fact that works righteousness doesn't save, because David had a terrible record. And yet here he is in Psalm 32, singing of the blessedness of one whose sins are not counted against them, but rather through David's repentance and faith, he has been counted to be righteous. And to this day, we don't primarily remember David for his record of heinous sin, but we remember him as a man after God's own heart, right? That's that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him, counted it to him, imputed to him righteousness. And it's the same uh, thing that David sung about in Psalm 32, because when you get it, when you understand that this is gift language, it's grace language, it makes you want to sing the praises of God who has blessed you in this way. So, having thoroughly illustrated the sufficiency of faith, apart from works, from the scriptures, Paul now anticipates the next question. Now, this brings us into the second paragraph of chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 here. And it's as if Paul's anticipating this question, even though it's never voiced. Isn't circumcision a necessary component for the fires of justification? Right? Okay, Paul. I hear what you're saying. I see the scriptures that you just proved from Abraham and David. But guess what? Weren't David and Abraham both circumcised? You're still talking about a blessing that only belongs to those who have the sign of the Old Covenant. Paul can anticipate this. Paul's already answered this question several times in this book. If you remember back to Romans chapter 2, very last paragraph in Romans chapter 2, Paul addresses circumcision directly. And look at verses 28 and 29 here of chapter 2. It says, Paul answers, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. All right, so Paul's already answered this question in in more of a teaching sort of way, you know, just sort of answering the question, is circumcision a necessary component of justification? No way, right? You can have the sign of circumcision, but have a heart that is far from God. And he he also demonstrates that you can not have the sign of circumcision and have a heart that is full of life, spiritual life, and believing in God. And Paul goes on to, to, to say in chapter 3, verse 2, he asked the question, you know, is, is therefore circumcision and being a Jew worthless? He says, absolutely not. There is There are great advantages to being Jewish and to being circumcised. And chief among some of those advantages, you might remember, is that the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. They had the special revelation from God that a Gentile certainly didn't have, right? You Um, You could look out and and learn certain things about God generally in creation. We have a witness of him written on our hearts. But to know specifics about him, you needed the, the word of God, the oracles of God. And the Jews were entrusted with that. So there was great advantages to being a Jew. But even though there were incredible advantages to being a Jew, the sign of circumcision itself was never intended to be a guarantee of justification, right? It the, pos, the mere possession of the external physical sign was ultimately meaningless if it didn't reflect an inner spiritual reality. So, Paul is now gonna, after having taught that already in, in chapter 2 and 3, he's now gonna demonstrate that, he's gonna illustrate it here through the life of Father Abraham, and uh, he's gonna begin doing that here in verse 9. He says, uh, Is the, the this blessing? then only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? So, is this blessing that David just sung about, is it only for the for the Jews, or is it also for the Gentiles? And um, Paul goes on here in verse 10, he says, or at the end of verse 9, he says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. All right, he's pointing back again to Genesis 15, 6. In verse 10, he says, how then was it counted to him? How was this righteousness counted to Abraham was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So so Paul is going back to the record in Genesis, and he's looking at the chronology of Abraham's life. And the fact of the matter is, Abraham was called out of his country in, in the country of Ur when he was 75 years old. Think about that. <laughs> when he was 75 years old, he was called out of his homeland. God called him to the the land of Canaan, and some 10-15 years later, God shows up in, in Genesis chapter 15, and God makes a covenant with Abraham, and actually God makes some promises to Abraham. Abraham believes those promises, and God counts it to him as righteousness, and then God actually puts Abraham to sleep. And There's Abraham, he's unconscious, asleep, and he's having this vision of God making an unconditional covenant with him. Abraham doesn't participate in it at all, he just witnesses God making this covenant with him. And then it's not until many years later, when, when Abraham is 99 years old, Genesis chapter 17, the passage that was read this morning, God speaks to Abraham again and finally, finally gives him the sign of circumcision. Right, so this means that, um, that Abraham walked with the Lord for some 25 years before he was ever even circumcised. Think about that. And, and Paul is basically asking the question, is this, is this an accident, the way God chose to do this? Right, is this an accident? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God was, I think, making a point that not only was circumcision not a necessary component of justification, but to the contrary, faith alone is the only sufficient component to kindle that fire. Look at verse 11. It says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was intended to be a a sign of, or a seal of the faith that he already had. That's what the, the scripture says right here. It's a, a, a sign or a seal of the inward, invisible righteousness that was declared of him back in Genesis chapter 15. Now, in scripture, when something is, is said to be a sign, I don't care if it's a miracle or, or if it's, a, it's something like circumcision. The point isn't the sign itself. The point is the greater reality to which the sign is pointing. So imagine you're driving down the road, you're going on summer vacation, you're falling asleep at the wheel. You look up and you see a big billboard that has this giant iced coffee on it. And it says, you know, exit ahead for some refreshment, something like that, right? You see the sign and you think, wow, that looks wonderful, right? So a few exits down the road, you get off, and you, you order yourself one of those iced coffees, right? That's the way it works. The sign itself is not the cool refreshingness. It's when you actually get off the highway, and you order yourself one, and you, you possess it, right? That's all a sign does is it points to the reality, and that's, that's what circumcision was intended to be. It was only a sign pointing to some greater reality inside, inside Abraham. He calls it a seal, uh, you know, in the old days when they would send a letter, they would put some wax on that letter and then they would press into it a seal and um, that seal on the letter was to guarantee the, the contents of that letter. And that's what what Paul says circumcision was to Abraham's faith. Right? It was sort of like that wax seal on the letter guaranteeing the authenticity of, Of what was within. And so, as I said, Abraham was was justified by faith many years while he was still uncircumcised. Probably a more shocking way to say that was that Abraham was justified by faith while he was still a Gentile. Right? If if being circumcised makes you a Jew, then Abraham was a a declared righteous Gentile for many, many years before he ever even received that sign or received that seal. And therefore, Paul's going to conclude that Abraham is truly the father of all who would eventually be justified by faith alone, whether they're circumcised or not. Look at verses 11b through 12, the second half of 11. He says, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, So, that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So, Paul's applying this principle first to the Gentiles, saying it doesn't matter that they're not circumcised, they have the faith of Abraham, right? And then he applies it also to the Jew and says, this also applies to the Jew who doesn't trust in the sign, but, but also demonstrates the faith that Abraham had. There is a common familial trait with Father Abraham, and that common familial trait has always been faith and faith alone. I like what Christopher Ashe had to say about this. He said, Abraham is not the father of unbelieving Jews, nor for that matter of any other nation surrounding Israel, Muslim nations or Arab nations, but he is the father of all Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus Christ and are justified entirely by grace and by no merit of their own. He is the father of one united church. Amen? Now, John the Baptist, I think, said said it so memorably in, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 8. He said that God is able to, from these stones, raise up for himself children of Abraham, right? Family lineage, um, descent from Abraham was is really nothing to God. God can raise up children of Abraham in that way, just like that. So... Don't put your faith in, in being from the right gene pool, uh, but put your hope in the spiritual lineage of placing your faith in, in Jesus Christ alone. That is the true familial mark. Now, I, I grew up going to church, going to Sunday school in the 20th century, and if some of you did as well, you were undoubtedly taught a certain song called Father Abraham. And uh, I bet Miss Pat could, could probably teach it to you, being the Sunday school teacher here. You, you remember this, right? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. You guys looking at me like I'm crazy. You guys remember the song? Yeah. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right? It's like the Christian hokey pokey. Then you stick one arm in, one arm out, right? And as silly as that song was in some ways, it taught a very real spiritual truth to our children, to to me, right? In Christ, I am joined in the family of faith across all ages, right? I am counted as a child of Abraham, a child of God by faith. I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. That is our uniting uh, the thing that unites us as a church. In the early church, it was division between Jew and Gentile, and that, that division in many ways still exists, but there is still the power in Christ to unite all diverse peoples of this world in Christ, in him, by faith. So why, why should this matter deeply to you this morning? I just have two points here in closing. And the first one I, I was just sort of talking about. Having a shared faith in Christ should be where you find your deepest sense of belonging. Right? Having a shared faith in Christ should be where you have your deepest sense of belonging. I recently discovered, you know, my parents were here last weekend. They weren't able to join us for church because of the, the quarantine from people from their home state. Um, but I recently discovered when they were here that I was named after my great-grandfather, Stanley Mistack. Never knew this. Can you believe <laughs> I'm 38 years old. Did not know I was named after my great-grandfather, Stanley. Now, I had either forgotten this or it had never been told to me for some reason. And uh, so I tried to press my parents for some more information about him, right, my forefather, And I didn't get much out of him other than that he mostly spoke Polish and that he loved Polish sausage. So that explains my love for sausage, I suppose, right? Um, Now, my forefather Stanley, he might have been a brother in Christ. I don't know, I never met him. I know very, very little about him. And I'm thankful for him, right? He's my great grandfather. Uh, Without him, I would not be standing here today, right? But I happened to know that I wasn't only named after my great-grandfather, Stanley. This is why I never knew this, because I always thought I was named after this guy in my, the, the church that my parents were saved in, um, and my grandparents were saved in this church. There was a guy in this church named Stanton, which is actually my, my full first name, Stanton. And I was always told I was named after this guy in their church who faithfully came to church every Sunday, sat in the same pew, and when he died, they actually put a plaque on his pew because he so faithfully sat under the word of God there, right? And so I asked my mom about that. I said, what about that guy in your church that you always told me I was named after? She said, well, yeah, you were named after him too, right? So I have have this unique situation of I have a namesake in the flesh. My great-grandfather Stanley knew nothing, very little about him, God bless him. And I'm also named after this man of faith in my parents' church. And it just got me thinking about, uh, you know, that, that distinction between, you know, our, our connectedness to our family, our blood, flesh and blood f- family, or, and whatever other sense of belonging we might have, right? We all have that. And that's not wrong. It's not bad. It's not to, to denigrate that in any way. But there is a stronger, deeper connection that you have with someone by faith. Right, this man in my parents' church, once again, didn't know him, but he was a brother in Christ. I know, I know that for sure. And he loved the preaching of God's word, and therefore, he is my my brother in Christ, even though I'm not related to him in the flesh. You know, Jesus even even talked about this a lot. Um, Mark in Mark chapter three, Jesus said, um, "Let me just read it to you." Mark chapter three, verse thirty-one. It says and Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you and he answered them who are my mother and my brothers and looking about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother so even for the Lord Jesus, even though he had a loving mother and he had brothers and sisters, he reckoned those who did the will of his father, who believed in him, believed in, in him and, and followed the father to be his true family. And I think that the same thing should be said of us as a church. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm not saying that family and national or ethnic belonging according to the flesh is meaningless. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that for those of us in Christ, there is a bond that runs deeper, not through the, the blood of natural descent, but through the blood of Jesus. And that needs to be your number one sense of belonging in life. And if it's not, you need to check yourself. We have, um, you know, as... as Christians, we, we believe that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. None. And our first identity is not the color of our skin. It's not the citizenship on our passport. But we have a deeper allegiance. We, we belong to the kingdom of heaven. We have a citizenship that is in heaven. And in Christ, we call on one Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named Ephesians 3:15. And so I love the glimpse of heaven that we get in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. John writes he says and after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb right is that is that your vision of heaven where it is filled with people from every nation all tribes all peoples all languages standing before God worshiping him Do you share that same view? Do you value and talk to and seek to understand your brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe aren't like you? Maybe don't share the same culture that you do, the same race that you do. And I think one good point of application this morning would be even within our own church, to seek to know and to love and to understand someone else who's not like you this morning. Don't just hang out here in in our church with the people who are just like you. Get to know people from every. Tribe and tongue and language, you're getting a, an early preview of heaven when you do it. Right? And so maybe that's a good point of application for, for someone here this morning is to, to reach out to someone who is not like them. Paul here in Romans chapter 4 is calling for racial and ethnic harmony in the early church, right? And we couldn't be sounding a, a more timely word in our own day as well, right? We as the church should be setting the pace on this issue. Should be setting the pace. We have a deeper sense of familial belonging in Christ. Secondly, and I'll close with this, I want to encourage you to lay aside your kindling. Lay aside your kindling. Some of you, either here on the lawn this morning or or perhaps watching through the internet, have been trying in vain to kindle a relationship with God, to, to justify yourselves before him, to, to sort of kindle a fire of your own making, and it's not working. You know, it reminds me of the story of Elijah and the prophets, the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel from the Old Testament. You guys know this story. This is one of the best stories in the Old Testament, one of my favorites. First Kings chapter 18, if you've never read it, you've got to go and read this. All right. Elijah, there he is, he's confronting his fellow Israelites uh, for turning to worship a false god, for worshiping Baal, looking to him for their provision and their safety. And Elijah says this to them, I'm going to quote to you right from the, that chapter. He asks his fellow countrymen, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal then follow him. And immediately following that, that really gut-wrenching plea from, from Elijah, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, it says, and the people did not answer him a word. And so Elijah proposes a test. Right? First, the prophets of Baal, uh, they could prepare an offering there on Mount Carmel and they could call upon Baal and call upon him to send fire from heaven, to light the altar, and the, the God who answers, and then after that Elijah would do the same thing, and the God who answers from heaven with fire, well then He is He is the God that you should follow. Right? That was the test. And hopefully you remember how it turns out the, the prophets of, of Baal call upon their God from morning till noon. Nothing happens, right? And then All afternoon, they whip themselves into a frenzy. They even begin gashing themselves until their their blood is gushing out on the ground, all in a vain effort to, to force God to answer them from heaven and to light their fire. They did it all day, all afternoon, and as the sun set, they were exhausted, and finally it was Elijah's turn. And do you know what Elijah did? He builds an altar there on Mount Carmel cuts the wood, puts the wood there, puts stones around there, 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. He sacrifices the animal, places the animal on on the altar, and then he digs a trench around the altar. And then he has them take four large stone jars, and they they douse it with water, with four stone jars, because completely douse all the wood, all the, you know, the sacrifice, everything, and they do it three times. So 12 total jars of water just completely doused on this thing. The water fills the ditch around it. So in a sense, it's Elijah saying here, even if I bring to this thing wet kindling, my God is going to light this fire. And with one simple prayer of faith, one simple prayer of faith, God sends fire from heaven and it consumes the offering, it consumes the wood, it consumes the stones, it consumes the dust of the earth where the offering was even standing and all the water that was in the dish is just instantly gone, fire from heaven. And that, my friends, is the difference between believing that I bring multiple components to this thing and then I light the fire and saying, Man, the best that I can bring is wet, completely soaked stuff, and yet God in his grace sends fire from heaven and justifies me and sets me on fire for him. Amen? God alone is able to save. And it is by faith alone we bring nothing to the fire. And so my, my simple plea to you this morning is to lay aside your own kindling and simply believe. Don't put your hope in external things, external rites and rituals, even things like baptism and and um, the Lord's Supper, you know, if the uh, circumcision was the, the sign and seal of the old covenant, we many ways baptism and the lord's supper are the signs and seals of the new covenant but we don't put our trust in those things put your hope in christ and in him alone this morning and be saved let's pray father we we thank you and we praise you for lord your your promise to us lord we thank you for your promise to save us lord not by works not by anything that we bring to the altar, Lord, but simply by faith and faith alone. Father, I pray that you would bless our church, Lord, with a simple devotion that simply believes your promises. Lord, may we not cling to our own righteousness, but may we cling to the righteousness of Christ credited to our account by faith. And Father, I pray that you would unite us as one family of faith. May we find our belonging in Christ, in Christ alone. May we not put undue emphasis upon other markings of belonging, but may we belong first and foremost to you, we pray. Father, I pray that you would soften hearts, that you would change us, Lord. And Lord, that you would help us to persevere in our sojourn here on this earth until you bring us safely home. I pray these things in Jesus' name.